The following is a conversation between Jim Bildner, Chief Executive Officer of the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. Every social enterprise and nonprofit organization has had to pivot and reimagine its service model as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But some have done it with breathtaking speed and creativity. And to learn about a few of those and what it is about these organizations has made them so agile and responsive, it's a pleasure to have with us Jim Bildner, the CEO of Graper Richards Kaplan Foundation and a trustee of the Kresge Foundation. Welcome back to the Business of Giving, Jim. Thanks, Andrew. Glad to be here. You know, before we get into the specifics of that, tell us about the DRK Foundation and the work that you do. I'll just give you the summary of what we do. So we have been around since 2002. We're one of the largest venture philanthropy firms in the country. And since that time, 2002, we've made about 165 investments in really powerful social enterprises, both nonprofits and for-profits. Our model has been the same from that beginning in 2002, which we are early stage funders, meaning typically the organizations in our portfolio are less than three or four years old, less than about a million dollars in revenue in almost every case. And we use the same criteria we've used in the past, which is we look at really four basic buckets. What's the complexity of the problem our organizations are trying to solve? Because if somebody else is doing it or it's uh, not a really complex problem, our time and capital is precious. What's the solution? Is it sustainable? Is there a business model behind it? And if it's a nonprofit, will they be able to raise philanthropy to get to a market and attract other capital? And if it's a for-profit, will they be able to raise capital over time? Then we look to the leader's skills. And today we're funding teams much more than we were ever funding mm -hmm. before because we need strong operating partners and strong domain partners. And then the fourth is the most important where can we add distinctive value as they replicate? And so that model has served us really well in the past. And that model is the reason why these organizations in our portfolio have been so successful at pivoting and frankly, why we are uh, able to be as resilient as we are to be able to lean into them because long before the virus, you know, our core expertise is our board service on these, each of these organizations. And unlike others, and every investment, for-profit, non-profit, that we bring into the portfolio, our managing directors serve on their boards. And that service is extraordinary. We have former U.S. attorneys, domestic and global health experts, technology, digital experts, education experts, and all of our 14 managing directors you know, are unbelievable human beings doing everything in their power to help our organizations succeed. One statistic that's really, I think, important is as we've looked back over time, we've looked at the impact our portfolio has had in the world and the total aggregated impact of our portfolio is 150 million lives. Wow. And because half of the entire portfolio is directly impacting 10,000 lives or more, a third of the portfolio, 50,000 lives or more, a quarter of the portfolio, 500,000 lives or more, and today about 21 organizations or millions of lives or more, and those are Education Superhighway, Crisis Text Line, Room to Read, One Acre Fund, Solar Sister, and the list goes on and on and on. And um, that speaks 
to the capacity of these early stage organizations to have a profound impact in the world. And that's where we rest, you know, all of our work. So that's a quick uh, snapshot of where the portfolio and the organization was. And I'm happy to, to tell you what we're doing now. Yeah, no, that's a great primer. It really is. And I tell you, I've spoken to a lot of nonprofit and social enterprises in the last week or two. And it is remarkable the role the board has played in getting some of them prepared or not prepared. And uh, you can't prepare now for a crisis. You have to do it ahead of time. So I know how important that board service is. So let us get to the present day and examining the kind of shifts that organizations are making. You categorize them into three categories, pop-ups, pop-outs, and push-through. So let's start with pop-ups, Jim. Tell us how you define us, how you define it, and then give us an example. Sure. So uh, before I do, I just want to also just recognize for your listeners the speed at which change has occurred, the unprecedented impacts, both health and economic, and the ubiquity of its impact across the world has literally taken place in weeks, not months. And so, you know, when people used to think of resiliency, they would think about resiliency to one factor or another factor. This presents an unparalleled challenge to any organization, and even more so to organizations who are serving the most vulnerable people on the planet. And so the first thing we did is we began to meet with all 67 of our current portfolio organizations. And again, just like everybody else, we're doing this through Zoom mm -hmm. to understand where are they today? Not where were they or where they're going. Where are they today in terms of their mission, their capacity? And by that, we mean human as well as economic. And then the most important thing is, do they recognize the disruption that has occurred in their distribution model, how they were delivering services. The easiest one to understand, and the one that's the most relevant, frankly, to the pop-up, which I'll talk in a second, is the education model. So entities that were providing services in school were instantly insufficient to that when schools were taking place at home. Mm -hmm. The example of a pop-up is something that literally can get created in days to solve a massive problem, and in this case, Education Superhighway, and Evan, who you've talked uh, you know, with before and probably will talk again, spent eight years connecting 47 million students to broadband in their schools. And then instantly, that becomes insufficient. Right. Just as he completed that project, the irony is he had just finished it, and boom, it, it, it's become obsolete, at least for the present moment. Correct. He, he was days away from sunsetting, as he very publicly said he would. Mm -hmm. And literally over the transom, he was offered 25 super spots from Sprint. And then was able within nine days to be able to put the pieces together, which is, all right, I've got these super spots. How do I deploy them? In some cases, they'll be using dormant buses. Other cases, they'll be putting in the community. And then how can I redeploy them as we fill these gaps in broadband for kids who typically are the most vulnerable and have no Wi-Fi access to help them with the essentials of their learning and life? And now going from San Francisco, he'll be on his way to deploying Texas and Oklahoma and other states. And the span of his ability to do so 
and to raise the capital to do so is breathtaking. Again, literally days, not weeks. And he didn't worry about entity formation, and he didn't worry about all the things that startups usually worry about. And we didn't worry as one of the first funders to this either. We were like, great, let's do this. Let's make it happen. We were able to catalyze $600,000, which is all that's required to get the first proof points out there. Mm -hmm. And this is called Digital Bridge K through 12. And um, what makes someone have the capacity to do this? I mean, you were talking about the DNA before the organizations that you have invested in. Tell us about the DNA of Education Superhighway that allows them to move like this in such a swift and effective fashion. So the key, the secret to being able to do this isn't the organization itself. Mm -hmm. The capacity of one human being to realize the opportunity set and be specific enough that you can raise the capital and get the tactics in place. And Evan has an example, but we have lots of examples. Yes, Loveland and others are able to do that. They're able to see a problem super clearly, see an opportunity super clearly, and be able to connect the dots without fear of failure, without over-calculating risk, and being able to seize the moment. I mean, you know, that's that's a... a phraseology that's overused, but if there ever was a time when urgency to act was, it's certainly right now. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think what you're also suggesting there is clarity. They can bring clarity to these issues very quickly so people can understand. Remember why that clarity is so important. It's because the people who need to embrace it, in this case, the mayor of San Francisco, don't have a lot of time. Yes. a detailed analysis, they have to be able to quickly understand this works. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Now, the second category is something you call pop-outs. What are the characteristics of a pop-out? And I think the example you have here is one uh, of an organization that's been funded by the Kresge Foundation, where you're a trustee. Pop-outs are organizations that have assets that were intended for one purpose, but are able to break out of that purpose in the moment to provide a completely different mission. And so uh, Mary Grove Conservancy is an enormously important uh, uh, fabric of a community whose mission was what we call a P through 20 community learning center. And we had just finished having the first ninth grade class you know, coming to the school, it was remarkable. The vast majority of those kids came from that neighborhood. And now, with schools being shut down, that's a large community conservancy. So property, tons of space, tons of buildings that can be immediately used by Detroit to house critical needs. And normally, that process would take months, Mm -hmm. if not years, And once again, because of the recognition by the mayor and the recognition of the Conservancy and the recognition of the incredible Kresge team, that happened in 30 days. And again, it's the speed of being able to pivot your mission. And the difference between a pop-up and a pop-out is the pop-up is relatively consistent with the mission of the organization. So in Education Superhighway and Digital Bridge K-12, it's about connecting students. The only difference is the physical place where you're being connected. 
the Mary Grove Conservancy has nothing to do with housing essential folks, but they were able to see the opportunity set. And I think over time, we're seeing both the pop-ups and the pop-outs in equal force. And it's recognizing boards and leaders that, hey, we have a critical asset for the community. We can make that happen now. And that's the distinctive value, the idea of not being wed to some mission that's no longer relevant in the moment, but recognizing the assets that can be deployed instantly to those that are in need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, having that nimbleness and that agility, and as you say, that speed. The mm-hmm. final category are the push-throughs. What's a right. push-through? Right, so historically, pandemics have terrible health impacts, and this virus is the same. They also, in this case, have incredible economic impact. In this case, probably the most severe since the 1930s. And most people kind of stop there. But really what pandemics are absolutely the best at are revealing the inequities that existed in society before them. But now because of all the magnitude of the health issues and the economic issues, all the disparities that existed in our society are now painfully obvious. Yeah, it's almost like there's a great unmasking that has occurred. They were there all the time, but they were somewhat camouflaged. They're no longer camouflaged. Correct. And so the push-through is the opportunity to quickly try to deal with some of those structural flaws as fast as possible. And they range through a host of different structural flaws. The ones that I point out to in the SSI article are the instant reaction now to having reduced fees for software licenses for critical organizations providing services by Twilio and others. They've done an amazing job. I'm asking Jeff, if he's listening, waive those fees altogether for a six-month time. And I'm hoping that Mark Benioff at Salesforce will do the same thing. You're seeing in Detroit, again, Dan Gilbert's organization, Bedrock, waiving rents for all tenants in the Midtown space for a period of six months. And the most remarkable thing, and you and I talked about this a couple of years ago, around unrestricted versus restricted funders, mm-hmm. is you have seen universally, all at once, every foundation saying the following to all of its grantees, which is if you had any restrictions on our grant, they're gone. If yep. you had any deliverables, that you had to do like a convenient, you don't have to. And that's the most important push through I see happening, which funders are are coming to the table instantly telling their grantees, hey, we trust you. We, We don't want to put any burdens on you. Do the right thing for your organization. And I think if we get through, well, I know we'll get through this period. I think that will last. It's not going to revert back to restrictions. This unrestricted, trusting of the grantee will persist and it's about time. And I'm so proud of all our peers for, you know, making this moment. It wasn't like we had a big conference call. Yeah, right. A hundred different leaders about it. Everyone came to the same conclusion. That shows, you know, the promise that might emerge from this, this idea that we finally realize that no matter whatever we thought, we are globally interconnected and every human 
is so dependent on other humans, regardless of where they live. So, you know, that lesson is, is I think, indelibly written at this point. Yeah, and to your point about these unrestricted grants, I mean, what a wonderful way to unleash the creativity and the innovation of the nonprofit sector and the people in it by giving them the latitude. And along with that, they've also been eliminating a lot of their reporting requirements. Correct. And not making them fill out. Now, maybe some of those are going to return or not. But again, to your point, and what you've talked a lot about is urgency and speed. The way you get faster is to eliminate unnecessary paperwork and unnecessary steps. And if you had eight and you can cut it to four, we're going to move a lot faster. And I hope that's the legacy of this as well. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, you're talking about some of these organizations that have changed and stepped up to meet the moment. The DRK Foundation is doing the same thing. So tell us how you're deploying your team and what you're doing to really fill the gap and be of most value in this circumstance. Right. So again, you know, I can't say it enough. I'm privileged to have the best team. All 34 of the folks that work at the foundation are unbelievably committed to a singular thing, which is to help others. And so at first when we were talking weeks ago, it seems like years ago, about how we should respond, a few of us began to use this idea of pivot. And one of our managing directors, Bill Rodriguez, reminded us that this is not a pivot for us. This is how we're built. Mm. We're built to lean in. So it's double downing, it's not pivoting. The one thing that we are doing that's slightly different is these pop-ups. So that we're not going through three to six months of due diligence. We're not requiring you know, perfectly created um, entities we're looking really for things that can be impactful at the moment at scale. And that is a little different from us. And so I hope all of your listeners will know that we're looking for as many digital bridge K-12 like organizations that can help in access to health, access to food, access to education, access to homes, access to, to security. And we're open to buy all day long for those things that can be deployed quickly now. Mm -hmm. Your final thought, how do you think this is going to impact the way philanthropists give in the future and the way nonprofit organizations are going to have to operate and function if they're going to survive and thrive? So I think the biggest and best outcome from this experience is that I am seeing for real collaboration among funders for outcomes. And so in the past, we might have had convenings, we might have had, you know, jointly shared objectives. Now this collaboration is for real. And we are working with lots of other peer foundations to help them, and they are working uh, with us to help us. And I think, again, this connected to this idea that no one is independent, and there's no silos out there, that we all depend on each other, is not just a profound insight, but it's likely to last and persist for the foreseeable future as we come to grips with other pandemics and as we come to grips with climate change and as we solve these inherent inequities that shouldn't have existed at the same time. So on that score, I'm super optimistic. I believe that these changes have given us opportunities to really make a difference once and for all across the board. Yeah, I would agree with that. And as a matter of fact, I think the whole nature of social change will change 
as a result of this. For people who are interested in learning more about all you've talked about, your full article can be found on the Stanford Social Innovation Review website. It's accessible to everybody. It's a great article. And I want to thank you, Jim. I know how busy you are for taking the time to share these insights and examples with us today. It was great to have you on the program. Stay well. Well, thanks, Andrew. Good to be with you anytime.